0: Hello again, and welcome back. I'm your host, Stéphane Dubillet, and you are listening to Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. I hope you are well, my dear Thought Thoughtvolutionists, as well as you are able to be. Being well can mean very different things depending on who you are and what you are struggling with right now. For some, being well means they are completely healthy. No pain, no issues, nothing. For others, it might mean that their mental health is allowing them a day with fewer dark clouds than they usually feel surrounded by. Or perhaps for somebody else, it's a day without a seizure or without a new diagnosis of yet another medical condition for them to learn to live with. For my guest today, being well has its very own meaning because Susie is a life-prescribed and self-proclaimed illness collector. Not intentionally so, but life seems to believe that Susie can handle a lot more than she has already had to in her 48 years on this planet. Together with her partner Don and their chihuahua Carlos, the Canada-born author, speaker, and musician lives in the United Kingdom. Looking over Susie's list of chronic illnesses and medical procedures makes me want to give her the biggest hug ever because I have no idea where she's pulling her strength from, when every day for the bigger part of her life has been so severely impacted by pain, uncertainty, and a great deal of suffering. She almost died because of type 1 diabetes when she was only 9 years old. Instead of a carefree childhood and adolescence, medical issues kept trying to control her life. When Susie was in her early 20s, she had a brain tumor removed. Temporary blindness caused her to lose her vision, figuratively and literally. I'm not able to provide a complete and comprehensive list, but Susie will tell us all about her illness collection today. Now, some of you might think that this episode is going to be sad and perhaps depressing, but you clearly have not met Susie yet. Instead of making mere lemonade with the lemons life throws her way, she's turning them into a delightful whiskey sour. (laughs) Believe me when I tell you that the next hour is going to be emotional, yes, but also really uplifting, funny, and simply wonderful, because Susie is so much more than her medical chart. And instead of just giving up, she uses the energy she has left in spite of it all to embrace the feelings of others and advocate for self-advocacy especially for those suffering from chronic illness and feeling misunderstood or often belittled by medical professionals or people around them. I cannot wait for you to meet Susie, and perhaps you will even get to hear that song that has been touching my heart so very much for the past week. Oh boy, let's welcome Susie to our crazy little Thoughtvolution community and send her the best warmest and most caring virtual hug we can come up with. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about chronic illness, disease, mental health, and death. If any of these subjects are triggered to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hello, Susie, and thank you so very much for being my guest today. I know we sadly had to postpone this interview and divert from our original recording date because of your health. I kind of want to set health and sickness aside for just a moment. Can you tell me what some of your bright spots were for you in the past few weeks or months? What sparked joy or simply stuck with you?
1: I have to say, I love it when my creativity is highly in action, let's just say. Sometimes it's kind of, it feels a bit buried deep in the mundaneness of life. But in the last week or so, I had a song come to me that came pretty easily, and they don't always come easily. But I sat at my piano, I felt it calling me, I sat down, and I had a concept. And then the lyrics seemed to just flow as well. And that is therapeutic for me, And often as a singer-songwriter, when I sit at my piano and it happens organically like that, it makes for my better songs. So that was a really beautiful thing that I enjoyed in the last couple of weeks. Still
0: ignoring the ginormous elephant of chronic illness for just a little bit longer, I wonder what growing up was like for you. I know you are originally from Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood?
1: Well, growing up... I lived on a farm and we had all sorts. It was a hog farm, cows, grain, chickens some of the time. And I had a horse named Misty. And other than one girl that I got to see on the weekends, we didn't go to school together. My horse was my best friend. And we spent hours in the fields together. I would just jump on her bareback and no halter or anything we would just we would just wander together she was just this gentle giant and uh loved that of course living in canada manitoba specifically the winters can be quite harsh and the summers can be quite hot which is lovely of course with the heat comes the mosquitoes so i never have been a lover of winter not terribly much into winter sports much preferred spring summer and autumn. But that was kind of the the temperature climate in which my childhood grew. And my dad was very busy on the farm, hours on end each day. My mom stri- struggled with her mental health a lot. So we kind of bended for ourselves as kids. I have an oldest sister, then a brother, and a younger sister. And we also had over the years, 99, 99, 97 foster kids. And this my younger sister was the last of them whom we adopted. So as far as back as I can remember, a lot of them predated me, but we always had extra extra babies in the house. And my older sister was very involved with the, taking care of them as well. So yeah, my family was not huge, but with the extras, it was. We spent a lot of weekends at my grandparents' place on their farm, and my aunts and uncles were there often. So it was a very large family feel in that sense. And, you know, of course, blips along the way, but I just, the highlights are the family and my horse, I have to say.
0: That is awesome. You went from this humongous family to now having your own little family, your own small family. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Well, yeah, it's my husband and Carlos, our Chihuahua, and I, we have a very small little nuclear happy family. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, I will get into my health story in a little bit, but I I did have a, a tumor on my pituitary gland that would have possibly made it impossible to conceive, but we never tried because the diabetes and the control that I had would have made it quite risky for both me and the child. And thankfully, my husband and I weren't highly driven to become parents. I think we would have if we didn't have the other challenges, but it wasn't a huge heartbreak. And so we've been quite happy. We've always generally had a dog in our picture, and Carlos is our COVID, <laughs> COVID dog baby. But we're happy. We're happy, the three of us.
0: Now, I spoke about the feeling of being well in my intro I know you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a child, almost dying from it at the young age of nine. So this may be a tough question to answer, but can you remember a time, if there ever was one at all, when you were completely healthy?
1: You know, honestly, if I think about my childhood, I I remember clearly when I was diagnosed and beyond. And I did have some healthy years, but my Memory is foggy, and I don't know if that is because of life circumstances at the time or just my age, uh, you know, being nine at the time of my type one diagnosis. But I did have some healthy years where I remember eating chocolate bars without worrying about it. And fun dips were my were my favorite go to candy. And we would get treats once a week, and I did that without having to worry, and then the diagnosis hit. So I know there were healthy years, but it all blurs together at this point.
0: Growing up is hard enough as it is, but growing up and learning that what so many people around you take for granted without even blinking an eye, being healthy and just living a quote unquote normal life, does not appear to be in the cards for you, that is so much harder. How did that affect you at such a young age?
1: I would have to say that in some ways it was a bit world shattering. And in some ways it just became normal life. I think because I was nine years old when things took a turn health-wise, I adapted fairly quickly. But that isn't to say that I treated my diabetes and my body kindly and that it treated me kindly. So it became a way of life. but. I guess not a kind one, if that makes sense. And I feel like that was quite a few years ago. I think we're going on 40 years ago. And technology has changed and education as far as diabetes has changed. And so I think that perhaps nowadays with insulin pumps and, and technology and and all the the knowledge out there, it doesn't have to be as devastating as perhaps it was in some ways then. I don't think I comprehended that that disease almost took my life at that age. I I knew I was very sick, but I don't think you can comprehend at nine what death looks like. And so I feel like it's kind of this um, strange, It was it was terrible and it was normal, you know, all at the same time.
0: And what does being well mean to you today? Before we dig into your entire illness collection, tell me what a good day feels like for you. And when was the last time you had one of those?
1: Well, a good day for me would be a day that I don't have to cancel on a social outing with my friends because I'm down for the count in bed. A better day would be that I don't have to cancel and I can do something creative, such as a writing project or sit at the piano and make some music. And an even better day would be those things plus not too much pain. I would have to say that I'm never pain free. And you'll hear that I've got a accumulation of of issues that feed into that. But some days are definitely worse than others. Some days I'm not nauseous at all. And some days I'm hanging over the toilet. So I suppose I measure my days in on a scale of manageable versus unmanageable. And I I think that I've learned that you you've got to look for those moments that even if you're hurting but you're getting to sit with friends and sip a good cup of coffee that that can make it a good moment and it doesn't diminish the fact that I'm in pain. But wow, I'm thankful that I'm able to sit there and engage and socialize and drink that cup of coffee. So yeah, it's it's certainly, it's certainly certainly a scale, but that's probably the best way I can answer that question.
0: With all of the illnesses you suffer from and the likelihood of dying from one of them always being a whisper that surrounds you, do you think that this closeness to such a very real ending of your own story has had an influence on the way you live?
1: Oh, it absolutely has had an influence on the way I live my life. And it's unfortunate that it's taken difficult times with my health to kind of learn some of the the lessons, I suppose, for lack of a better word. But I would say the, the first thing, not in any particular order, but the first thing it makes me think about differently is death itself. I love how you said how you phrased that, that it's a whisper kind of always there. And I think I might quote you on that, Stefan. It is kind of just this always in the background running sort of thing. And it has made me realize that death is a part of life, one that we will all face in one way or another. We will lose someone or we will be faced with it ourselves, probably both if we, you know, get past childhood and i think that although i sometimes worry about what the process of death will will look like for me and will it be uncomfortable or painful death itself i think it's not as scary and i think it's a topic that i'm not afraid to talk about perhaps maybe to the point where others are not comfortable with having the conversation and i don't pick up on it but i think that we could do better in society with preparing for death for our family's sake for our own wishes what do we want our end of life care to look like if if we are sick do we want to be the decision makers in respirators or life support or do we want someone else to be making those decisions so it's made me practically think about death itself a lot more than i think i would have if i if i didn't have my illnesses but also something that it's taught me, which I relearn over and over again, but it, to really notice whatever moment you're in and and take it in. And that doesn't mean only the beautiful moments. That means it's okay to recognize whatever you're feeling in the moment. Um, but if I can remember there was a time when I was bedridden and my husband would carry me to our back garden and, and put me in a lawn chair, a recliner lawn chair. I was loaded up with blankets and I could could barely speak, couldn't feed myself at this point. And I just would notice the mice playing, running through the the rocks. We've got a rock wall in our in our back garden here in England. And they would they just looked so joyous playing. And I used to hate mice. But I thought, wow, this is I mean, I, I still don't want them, you know, getting through my stuff in the house. But it was a joy, a pleasure to have something to occupy my mind and listening to the birds sing, oh my word, we've got trees behind us and the symphony that they can make. And I never noticed those things before. And so it wasn't until my mortality, I suppose it's always kind of been in my face, but until I processed it, I realized, oh, like, you know, carpe diem, seize the day. So whether that's watching the mice, whether that means I'm I'm in a good zone, which I, I, you know, can be in, and that means we go traveling so that I can see another part of the world. The first time we ever traveled somewhere was because I was losing my sight, and my husband said, you know, let's go somewhere while we can, while you can still see it. And that's, that, I mean, wow, for him to, what a gift he gave me. But it also has stuck with me that, yes, I want to take the opportunities to do what I can while I can. So I think I think those are the main kind of areas in which my health has shaped my my priorities and my just my day-to-day activities and and the bigger celebratory times like traveling.
0: You mentioned the practicality of preparing for the hopefully for all of us unlikely event of death but sadly as we all know it's not really that unlikely for anybody. We tend to block death out and not consider it. But somebody suffering from chronic illness and almost dying from chronic illness obviously has that picture much more in front of them than perhaps the rest of us. What are some practical things that you have done to prepare for, well, for death?
1: Well, I would say there's a few things I've done. First of all, I have talked about it. I've talked about my wishes with, with my friends and some of my family because I want witnesses to know that there are things that I don't want to happen. I don't want to be kept alive on machines and have an awful quality of life in the end, if it's the end, and that's obvious. So I, I do talk about it openly, and I'll even say, like, note this, because this is important to me, and I want them to hear it. And I don't want there to be disputes, I suppose, if if it came down to that. Uh, and decision making time, but I actually wrote out a document. It's a little outdated now, and this is reminding me I should update it. But of my quote unquote funeral wishes, I don't necessarily want a typical funeral. I want a I want a time where people can freely mourn and also freely celebrate. And I've written down my wishes even to. The point of what songs I would like played because music's very important to me as a musician. Who I would want to officiate, I've asked that person if they if they would do it, and they've thankfully agreed. And what kind of setting I would want, all of that to say, if my husband would like something different, he gets final say. Because really, at that point, it isn't about me. Once I'm gone, then I want it to be about the people that are left. But people, I think many people don't know what the wishes are when someone passes away and then they're stumbling at the worst time. They've just lost someone. They're starting this grieving process and they have no idea what that person's wishes would be and what they would want their funeral to look like. Where Do they want to be buried or cremated? Because it hasn't been part of the discussion. And so I think that mm, some might call me a control freak. Or I feel like I'm helping others so that it it takes the decisions out of their hands at a really difficult time. So yeah, I've gotten pretty practical about, about the whole thing, but also philosophical as well.
0: Now, let's talk about your collection of illnesses. With as much detail as you wish, can you walk us through your illnesses? How they began? How they affect you today? and what the progression of those illnesses will most likely look like.
1: Well, as mentioned, my story began at the age of nine with the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. I had been quite ill for a couple of weeks and was rapidly losing weight, drinking like crazy, heading to the loo, as we would say here in England, often. But we didn't know back then the symptoms of, of diabetes, and so we thought that I had the flu. But this flu was going on for a little longer than typical. And my mom, my recollection was that she wasn't terribly well at that point, either either with back problems or her mental health. And she finally noticed the weight loss and that I was really looking unhealthy and took me to the, the GP. And the GP basically took one look at me and said, you need to go straight to the the children's hospital, which was two hours away. Just drive. It'll be faster than an ambulance. And I'll call ahead. They'll be ready for you when you get there. And my dad was not one to speed, but I'm pretty sure he did that day. And I remember him telling me he was actually wishing that a police officer had pulled him over so that he could then get an escort so that he could be driving even faster. But by the time I, well, on that drive, that two-hour drive, or perhaps hour and a half, I was in and out of consciousness. And they told us later that week while I was at the hospital that if I'd gone to sleep that night, I I would have died. And I ended up in the ICU for about three or four days. And my little nine-year-old brain didn't totally understand I don't think, what did that mean? And, and that I was as sick as I was. Nobody was telling me with words that I ha- I was about to die. And I just noticed really sick kids all around me. I thought, what am I doing here? But anyways, after two weeks of being in the hospital, they did some some training, taught me how to in- give injections and check my blood sugar and some, at this point, I would say rudimentary food knowledge uh, for eating for diabetes. And then sent me home. And at first, it was kind of exciting because with all my friends at school, I was the hero. I mean, I was taking needles, and I had—I um, was in the hospital for two weeks, and everybody wanted to know what was happening. But that did wear off, and I set the scene with this diabetes because a lot of my challenges since then, you'll see, are connected to diabetes, but not all of them. So. In my teens, I needed a kidney biopsy because they were seeing signs of early kidney disease. And my kidneys are actually doing pretty good these days. But they did that biopsy and um, they also told me around that time that if I didn't get better control of my diabetes, I'd be dead by the time I was 25. And that stuck with me in a way that it probably shouldn't have. But I sometimes feel like I'm living on borrowed time, which is is kind of silly, but that was an impactful statement. So I had the kidney biopsy, and then early in my twenties, I developed a very strange symptom that was out of nowhere. And I started lactating. And that's normal if you've just had a baby or if you're pregnant, but I neither of those things were my case. I remember waking up on my honeymoon, the day after our wedding, and my shirt just soaking wet. And I apologize if that's too much information for some of you, but this is the realities of illness. So anyway, that clued us in that there was a problem, and I saw my endocrinologist, which sent me down the route of finding out that I had a tumor on my pituitary gland, which sits right at the front of your brain, and it was large enough that they said they needed to remove it. So brain surgery ensued. And I mean, I know we don't have the power to control avoidance of brain surgery, but if you can, I recommend it. It wasn't a great time. I also recommend if you're looking for a job, don't phone the manager who's just had brain surgery while they're at home recovering and ask them for one. That's not a good plan. I'll just let you figure that one out, but they didn't get the job. We'll just say that. So... There's always the threat of that tumor growing back. So still to this day, I have regular blood tests to check for hormone imbalances and have had the need for MRIs, I think three or four times because my blood work has come back abnormal. And there was uh, the possibility that it was back. So far, so good. So that's one of those Whispers that kind of is just always there in the background, knowing that that could happen. They didn't tell me until I'd had the surgery that it could grow back. So that was a bit of a shock, but nonetheless, the truth. So then, somewhere in my 20s, but I'm terrible with time frames, I developed a mass in my liver. And so I had a few scans about that one over a few years that we had to watch it. But Somehow, miraculously, that is gone now, which doesn't make sense because apparently that type of mass doesn't disappear. But hey, I'll take it. I don't need that. But at the same time, I was also threatened with MS, which has happened on multiple occasions because I've got neuropathy from the diabetes, which is both peripheral and autonomic. So peripheral neuropathy is Where, when you're, you know, your hands or feet, your extremities are affected by nerve damage. So that can mean pain, tingling, numbness, all those sorts of things. But I also have autonomic neuropathy, which means that the nerves that control your organs that are supposed to work on their own are affected. So for me, at the forefront of that is what's known as gastroparesis, which means my gastrointestinal system from top to bottom is extremely slow. I remember I needed a test to find out how quickly my stomach was emptying of of food after I ate. And basically, I had to eat scrambled eggs that they had put radioactive something in. And then they took an x-ray every 15 minutes for like, seven seven hours to see to watch it move now most people your food leaves your stomach it starts leaving your stomach within a, a couple to four hours and it's usually out of there and interestingly enough the technician that was taking the the x-rays it got to the end of a shift at the end of the day and he said you know you're gonna have to come back tomorrow we're we're, we're not done with this and I thought oh that's strange okay so he didn't really explain any further but I went back first thing in the morning and he said, he he did another x-ray and he said i've never seen this before the food is still in there they have not moved out of your stomach now it ebbs and flows as to how extreme it is so it's not always that delayed but also my intestinal system is extremely slow as well and i'll just say that i can't keep things moving naturally so that has meant enemas or all sorts over the years and thankfully I'm in a fairly good place with that right now and not almost dying. But there was a point when it was so bad that they said, our only hope is to implant a gastric pacer. And so they implanted, it's a it's like a heart pacemaker, but they put it in the wall of your belly and then they worm wires up to attach at the bottom of your stomach. And it was meant to send signals and stimulate the stomach to to move and process the food and and get it out of there two problems one is it caused extreme agony every time i i had a bite of food and so i again rapidly lost weight couldn't hardly eat anything and every time i did i was doubled over in pain for usually a few hours at a time which made it very tricky going out for dinner with friends because i'd be walking down the the sidewalk doubled over holding my clutching my stomach after, you know, just part of a, an appetizer. And I, I learned how to not scream from the pain, but it started out that way. And the implant didn't do its job. And so we ended up two years later taking it out. And the, the scary thing about that was they had told me that it was our last chance. Now, thankfully it hasn't shut my system hasn't shut down altogether. So I'm still still kicking and I have extra weight to lose now. In that sense, that's that's good news. But it was quite strange having this machine inside of me. And I also developed fibromyalgia, which probably is because of the diabetes, although you definitely don't have to have diabetes to have fibromyalgia, but it causes bodywide pain, mostly in the muscles, uh, sometimes in the joints, and that ebbs and flows as well. And so I mean, fibromyalgia, if you look up the list of symptoms it can cause, it's everything from brain fog to insomnia to to the pain. But it started for me with pain and then just grew to other things from there. And I've always struggled with migraines, but again, that ebbs and flows as far as how often I get them and how long they last. And I think with some, I've learned I've got some food intolerances. So that has helped with, I think, partly with my digestive system and as well, perhaps with the migraines. And I will say female hormones are a powerful, powerful thing, people. And so that affects my migraines as well. But I just have to, well, I don't know. I hesitate to tell this story. I think some of you will find it fascinating and some of you might just switch off. So I won't get too graphic, but another test that I had whilst trying to figure out the the implant or not, and whether we should take it out and what we were going to do, it's called a defecating proctogram. And I'll let you look that up if you want to know what the details of that are. But basically, I'm going to tell you that I was in a room with about five people with a portable toilet in the middle of the room, and they filled me with barium and then cheered me on as I defecated in front of them all while they took x-rays. So, I I again, I apologize if that's a little uncomfortable to hear, but I think it's important that we normalize this because I wasn't the only one sitting in that waiting room. There were other people that were about to have that same test and this is what goes on behind the scenes that you don't usually hear about. And I just think that we shouldn't be embarrassed by the I mean we it's embarrassing. I mean, that that I thought in that moment while I was in the middle of that room, I was like, it doesn't get any lower than this. But I think in general as society, we need to normalize some things, you know, for the sake of of our mental health and our well-being. But I'll move on from that. So that's the highlights of my medical history. Oh, no, I forgot a big one. M E. It's myalgic encephalomolitis. I don't know if I'm saying that quite right. It's a really big word. But it's also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. But that is actually what made me bedridden for a while. And I've had it for years to different degrees. But even to this day, if I get fatigued or eat the wrong thing, my legs will stop working. Sometimes my arms. It basically just depletes your muscles of any energy. And that can rule my life. Some days I am at the mall shopping and some days I'm using my blue badge to park at the nearest spot next to a door because I'm not sure I'm going to make it back to my car. So in general, I'm doing pretty good with that right now. When I think of myself at my worst, my husband had to feed me. I wasn't strong enough to press the buttons on my insulin pump. You know, showering was a luxury that barely happened because I couldn't get there. And anywhere I went, my husband carried me. We bought a wheelchair. And thankfully I've improved remarkably from that point in my life. But it it's still a, it's still a part of my daily life. So that's the highlight reel, I would say. And yeah, I'll leave it at that as to not totally overwhelm you.
0: I wonder what your relationship to your body is like. Do you love your body in spite of it? constantly working against you, quote unquote.
1: Do I love my body? Oh wow. Okay, Stefan. Um no. The honest answer, and I wish it wasn't, the honest answer is no, but the truthful answer is I I I feel like my my body sometimes is the enemy and it's really tricky because it's you we, I can't separate me from my body now I like the person that I am today in general of course room for improvement but I can sit with myself I like my own company but I do find myself saying this body of mine like why does it hate me so much and I think it's important that I'm honest about that because we hear so much about body positivity nowadays And I think that that is great if we can achieve it. But I struggle with weight issues and I struggle with all my illnesses. And I think we've been taught to fight the good fight. Uh, How many times have we heard someone lost their battle to cancer or they're fighting hard? And we use all this really aggressive language. And I have to say that doesn't resonate with me. I want to embrace my illnesses and my body because I think, now to be clear, I'm not judging those people that use that language if that's what gets them through. But I feel like I want an acceptance so that I'm not fighting against myself. But I haven't totally achieved that. So I I try, I remind myself that my body is also helping me sit here in this chair and have this conversation with you right now and it is letting me go for that coffee with friends or to the mall on a good day or sit at the piano and play those keys and pedal that pedal. And so I I do have to remind myself on the bad days it's the enemy and on the easier days I I can see that it is it it isn't all bad. But it's certainly something that I'm constantly working through. And I wouldn't say that I uh, I don't know that I have achieved the end goal. And so I don't know that I could give advice on that, if if you know what I mean. I don't think I could counsel someone on how to love their body under these circumstances because I don't think I'm there yet. But I certainly want to do a good job of embracing it when I can.
0: As a chronically ill person, one thing that is an essential lifeline in the most literal sense for you is the healthcare system. What does a typical week or month look like in terms of doctor's visits?
1: Well, I would have to say it it ebbs and flows in the sense that I'll go through times where if things are not flared up or I'm doing pretty good, then it's just the routine checkups for the diabetes or the eye appointments. Oh, I didn't even mention that. I've got three eye diseases, retinopathy. Yes. Anyways. So I have regular checkups every couple of months, either by phone or at the doctor's office for, you know, some of those things. But when I'm struggling with other things, either related to my problems or new problems, I I still get the, the typical UTIs or carpal tunnel that, you know, other other people who don't generally suffer with chronic illness get. And so they can pile up. I did the math once and I realized I've had over a thousand blood tests from my arm. I've actually retired the vein that's the most easiest found because of so many of them. And I do find that when the appointments pile up, so I just recently I Was dealing with some routine things, had an eye appointment. I had infection in two different body parts. I had follow up appointments because of those infections. I was at the doctors on average three times a week, I would say. And when they pile up like that, I often also get fatigued with the diabetes because. The management of that is nonstop, 24-7. And when you throw in all those other things on top of it, I will hit the wall. And I am not going to lie. I don't know what day this is, but a few days ago, I hit the wall and I cried over font choices. (laughs) I was trying to pick fonts for a writing project and I lost it. And it had nothing to do with the fonts, but everything to do with the fact that My appointments had piled up. I was exhausted from trying to deal with it all. And so, yeah, it's sometimes a lot and sometimes manageable, but it's constant, whether it's stretched out or intense.
0: I can't believe that we talked about your collection of illnesses and some of them really slipped through the cracks. So, can you tell us about the issues that you've had with your eyes and what you had to do to address those? I know. There was even temporary blindness. Can you talk about that for a little bit?
1: You can't believe that slipped through the cracks. Oh my goodness. that's That was a, a a huge one for me. The first eye problem that I had was from the diabetes directly. It's called diabetic retinopathy. And I went in for my yearly routine eye check at the ophthalmologist, which they put in place in Canada, at least for people with type 1 diabetes. And up until that point, he had always said it looks normal for someone who's had diabetes this long. And I always heard it looks normal. Well, this time, that is not what he said. He said, Suzanne, you have stage four retinopathy. And in case you're like me and can't always remember which stage is worse, that's the one. And he said, we need to immediately start doing laser surgery, not to be confused with sight correction laser surgery, but they burn the retinas with with the hopes of stopping useless and harmful blood vessels that are growing. They burn them so that they won't keep growing and causing problems. But he said you still might have bleeds in the eye, which don't worry, the outside world doesn't see them. But that did happen. So first in my left eye, it, it was such a bad bleed, it completely blocked my sight. And I needed to have eyeball surgery, which became one of the trippiest... Circumstances of my life. If you thought the proctogram wasn't there, folks, here we go. What he had to do was first of all, you can't be put under when you have eyeball surgery because in REM sleep, your eyes move. So they need you awake. So they just freeze it locally. So he froze my eye and then he stuck a Hoover into it to suck up all the blood. Now, I didn't feel any pain, but I did see the vacuum cleaner. And let me tell you, if there is a twilight zone, I was in it. Then fast forward a couple of months and the same thing happened with my right eye. So I had to have another surgery. And this time I did not see the vacuum cleaner, but I did feel it. And I still go in circles thinking if I ever need to have that again, which is a possibility, which would I prefer? Not that I have any control over it. But they were both their own flavor of awful. So, for any of you who might need a vitrectomy, I hope that the meds work and you don't see nor feel it because that is what's supposed to happen. I did ask the doctor. I said, why could I see it? Was that normal? He said, oh, no, you should have said something. And I'm like, you've got a hoover in my eyeball, doc. I'm not probably going to start a conversation with you. So, Thankfully, those surgeries did regain my sight. I'm driving now. I have some challenges, a little bit blind spots. So reading is more work. My brain has to fill in some some of the blanks, but uh, generally I see pretty good. So I am so thankful for those surgeries, despite their weirdness. And then since then, I've developed the beginnings of glaucoma as well as cataracts. And I know that cataracts are typically easily dealt with. But because of the retinopathy, it's much more complicated for me and much more risky. So if I need cataract surgery, well, at this point, we're just waiting until I can't see because of the cataracts, because if it goes wrong, well, then I won't have lost anything. So when I see the, the ophthalmologist nowadays, it's for three things. But he's excellent. So I'm thankful for that, doctor. You mentioned an excellent
0: doctor. Now, I want to dig a little deeper. How do you personally assess the quality of the healthcare you currently receive? Is there a big difference between the Canadian and the UK healthcare systems? And how do you believe a good healthcare system needs to function in order to truly provide sufficient resources and support to chronically ill patients?
1: I'd have to say that the Canadian and the UK healthcare systems are fairly comparable and similar enough that it wasn't a shock going from Canada here to the UK uh, to navigate it practically. They're both free healthcare systems, government funded. And I would say that the uh, amount of time you get with your doctor is very similar. The services that they offer are very similar. There are, you know, there are some differences within that, but again, I I think it's sometimes hard to work out, do these tests take longer over here just because of the amount of patients currently waiting over here? Or is that a difference in the healthcare system? But they're fairly comparable. I would say that my current healthcare that I receive, you know, back to that great eye doctor that I mentioned is remarkable. My GP, I absolutely love. And it took some time when I moved here for her to learn to trust me as a patient for her to figure out that I'm in tune with my body and we now have a, a the kind of relationship where we both care for each other. Uh, obviously I'm not practically caring for her like she is for me, but I care about her day. I you know, I care about her well-being and she also cares about me as a person and I've actually seen her rejoice when I get a good test result like put her hands in the air and, and clap. So I had an excellent GP back in Canada, who I actually still see. And I see him professionally if I need someone when I go back to visit. But I also will pop in just to say hi and have a little quick catch up when I'm back because I miss him. And they, I mean, don't tell his patients, but they always sneak me in between appointments. And we have a little like, you know, how's England? Have you had any holidays? A little catch up. And then and then I you know, come back out. And his assistant, as well, I have a great relationship with her. I know all about her daughter, and always I'm sure to ask how she's doing, and we look at pictures and and so really strong relationship. And I find that with my specialists as well as although I don't see them as often as my GP, I have solid relationships, and I don't feel rushed when I'm with them. I feel like they're thorough. I feel like if I say, hey, do you think we could maybe check my iron levels? I'm thinking that they might be dropping again, that they are willing to do that for me. I have an excellent gastroenterologist. Here's the thing. I think that it isn't automatic. I think that we as patients have some responsibility for our own health, but also can do things to help ourselves at the doctor's office. I think that we can make a difference for our healthcare. So putting some things in practice that I've learned over the All of my many thousands of doctor's appointments, I think has sped up a solid relationship. And so I really feel like I'm in good hands to the point where I actually wrote a book uh, about kind of how to build those relationships and how to get great care. As far as a good what makes a good healthcare system. Now I don't profess to have answers as far as how. Governments should run the healthcare systems. I think they're broken. I think both in Canada and here in the UK and from what I hear about, even in the States, which is a very different model, our healthcare systems are broken and people or their problems are slipping through the cracks. Test results get lost. People are rushed through because they don't have enough time to to be digging deep into people's problems. It's a broken system and I don't know how to fix it. I know I'm thankful for the free healthcare systems in which I deal with. And I can't imagine with all of my issues fighting insurance every time, you know, I have to go to to an appointment. I don't know what the best model is. But I will say that for people who are chronically ill, what matters the most is that their medical professionals see them listen to them, understand them. And I I think that we want to we want our doctors to know that we're not making things up, that we are suffering. Sometimes you're not even hearing the worst of it, it because we're trying to be heroes, and we just really want that understanding and care so that when it comes time for action, tests needed or action taken or new meds, that A, that good decisions are being made and not rash ones or necessarily just the typical ones that work for some people, but B, that we we feel like humans, we feel like people sitting in that office and not just a number. So I think that comes down to somewhat personality of the medical professionals. But also just, as I mentioned, that relationship building, I think, is also key. And then sometimes you just get, you you get doctors or nurses or staff who are difficult. And that's sad that that happens. But we need to make it human. For me, that's a good healthcare system.
0: Something that you are very outspoken about is what you call negative positivity. Can you tell us what that means? and how it can be avoided by those wanting to be more helpful when communicating with chronically ill patients.
1: Negative positivity to me is a reframe of the term that we hear a lot these days called toxic positivity. And for me, what that means and what I see out there is is that mindset that if we just think positive or encourage other people to be positive, that it it will change their life and all will be well. And I want to say that I know that for the most part, it's well-meaning, but I'll give you some examples of some things that for those of us who have chronic illness and are dealing with challenges day in and day out, or those who are grieving or, or struggling with their mental health, going through a hard time, phrases like everything happens for a reason, or, well, it could be worse, right? Or look on the bright side, or maybe... Well, look for the lesson in it. You're, you'll probably learn something from it. They're not helpful. I Again, even if they're well-meaning, what it speaks to us as the receiver is that uh, it feels like we aren't allowed to feel our feelings, to get into what we're going through. It feels like a, a dismissive statement. And some of them are, I don't even think, uh, everything happens for a reason. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe there's truth to that. Maybe everything does happen for a reason. But I don't think we're always going to find out what that reason is, if there is one. And so it it doesn't help when we hear that as a, as a quote-unquote supportive statement. And I think that there's ways that we can encourage each other without giving that cliched statement. We can reframe these words. Everything happens for a reason. Perhaps we could say something like, I don't understand why this is happening to you. And immediately we as the receiver feel a little bit understood and heard, like, get it. This is hard what we're going through. It could always be worse. Well, sure. You know what? I just had my big toenails removed recently. It wasn't a great day. Could it be worse? Yeah. My brain surgery was worse. The hoover in my eyeball was worse. But. The day I had my big toenails removed, it felt pretty bad. So that statement of it could always be worse is absolutely true, but it's just not helpful. So I think that we should think before we speak and not just throw out something that kind of ends the conversation and feels good to us as the, as the healthier or, or non-struggling person let's just say and i think there's some reasons why people say these things sometimes it's just because they don't know what to say and i'll just say if you don't know what to say say that because the the phrase i don't know what to say speaks a lot it speaks to the fact that yeah there are no words this is hard i think another reason why people you know throw out these these clichés is because maybe they're not even comfortable with their own emotions they can't handle yours they don't know they don't know what to do with the fact that you're crying in front of them because they're ashamed, ashamed or embarrassed by their own tears or uncomfortable with them so i think there can be a few motives for them i don't think it's usually toxic as we say because i think that they are well meaning and that's why i frame it negative positivity i think it's a softer word that it that they're harmful but not on purpose. So they're negative, but I don't think they're toxic. I think that's just too strong. And I just am passionate about helping helping people reframe them so that they're not at a loss for words and just let's talk about the the fact that our words matter and try to do better. And I'm in this I've said some of these things myself. And it's not until you you hear them on the other uh, on the other end of it that you you realize, "Oh, yeah, that doesn't feel so good."
0: We have got to talk about your book, Susie. Tell us about it, where people can find it and what you are trying to accomplish with it.
1: My book, yes. Well, as you may have noticed earlier in the conversation, I'm quite passionate about helping people get great care at the doctor's office. And so I wrote a book called Help the Doctor Help You, 31 Secrets and Tips for Self-Advocacy to get the best at your appointments. And I'll just say now it's available on Amazon, wherever you get your Amazon books in all the countries. So you can get it there, but basically it's full of tips and secrets and I've woven stories through it as well from my life that kind of reinforce the tips in action. And some of the stories show what I wish I would have done differently because, hey, I'm not perfect either. But Basically, the tips may, they touch on, you know, showing up on time and why that's so important. I mean, we, we that seems so simple, but it makes a huge impact. If you are someone that shows up late regularly for your appointments, even though the doctor might be running behind, the reception are noticing. And I actually had a receptionist once say that they are more likely to squeeze you in if they know that you're going to show up on time and be there and not complain about a wait, then those who consistently don't show up on time or or don't show up at all. But then there's there's other tips such as, you know, you'll sometimes see littered around offices, feedback forms. And we I never used to think twice about them. But now if I've received, I only fill out the feedback form if I've received really great care. If I if I need to complain about something, guess what? That's in the book too. How to do that wisely. But I will fill out a feedback form and say my name and the doctor's name and why that appointment went so well for me. Because they will get that feedback and they will remember you and they will as a human being probably subconsciously care more about you than the person who walks into their office complaining, which again I may have done once or twice, which I regret. But, you know, it's the things like this past week, I had my doctor, I needed antibiotics. Well, I didn't know if I needed antibiotics. We did a sample and the results were not going to be back for a week. But she said, I'm going to give you the antibiotics anyway. If it gets worse, start taking them. Otherwise, we'll wait till the results are back. Well, guess what? The next day, I got terribly ill and needed those antibiotics. We saved me an appointment. We saved her an appointment because I already had them. She pre-prescribed them. And that is because we have a great relationship. When I walk into her office, I ask her, like, how's your day going? Or if she's running behind, I'll say, oh, I hope you're not too stressed out because because you're running behind. And the looks on doctors' faces, when you actually humanize them and don't just see them as a white coat that's there to solve your problems, it's, it's incredible. And I'm not saying that it. It's on us as patients to have to work to get good care. I don't think that's the way it should be. But all I'm saying is when we humanize them, they humanize us and there are ways that will impact the care we get that we can be empowered to influence. So I'm passionate about that. Like I said, thus the book help the doctor help you. And I mean, I just hope that it helps people feel seen and heard and, you know, get those tests done that they need, have thorough care and have caring care. It's all I can say is, as I said before, my team is incredible and my team is huge. So I think it's doable. You also make incredible
0: music. And we even have a song we're going to play in a few moments that really grabbed me and stuck with me for a while. Can you tell us what got you interested in making music?
1: Well, when I was four or five, my parents, my sister was already taking piano lessons. I think my brother had taken some, but wasn't terribly interested. But then when I was four or five, they decided to give me lessons as well. And... I can't say that I loved the piano lessons, but I did love the piano. And so I stuck them out. I had a few piano teachers over the years. And then as a, I gave it up because I wasn't really connecting with my teacher in my early teens. So I gave it up for maybe a year or so. And then in my community, I found out there was a concert pianist, elderly woman who that only matters because she's passed away now. But she was giving lessons, and so I thought, well, I'll try her out. And so I went there, and she realized, she clued into me, I'd always get my teachers to play the pieces before I would play them because I could read the notes, but I struggled to read timing on the music because I played by ear, so when they would play the songs, I could mimic them back, and she was on to me. So she said, look, I can see you're not practicing, you're not loving doing this classical, uh, the classical pieces I'm giving you, do you want to develop your ear? And I leapt off the seat with joy. Yes, I definitely wanted to do that. So she really sparked that playing by ear freedom that I found. And then I also played in a contemporary church band for quite a few years. Beside, I started out at the keyboards beside a really accomplished pianist. And then eventually I became the lead kind of of the band for many years. And so that gave me a lot of good kind of live playing experience. And we had drums and guitars and the whole, kind of the whole thing. And then when my eyes went bad, when I got the retinopathy and found out that I could go blind, it hit me, I play by ear. I don't need my sight to play the piano. And because it was a really dark time, I... (laughs) in the pun. I started writing music at that point, started composing and writing, and I've been in the background writing and composing years uh, music for years, but only in the last few actually have been releasing it out to the world. But that's really when it became a lifeline for me, and really has been ever since. Whether it be you know a dark time because of the eyes or other health issues or or grief or other stress, the the piano is, it is a place. It's not just an object. It is a place that I can be. And yeah, that's, that's where my passion came from. So thanks, mom and dad.
0: Now, the song I would like to play is called It's Lonely Here. And just a fair warning, thought volutionists, goosebumps are guaranteed. Can you tell us more about the song and what it means to you?
1: Wow, yeah. um, it's lonely here. That is an important one to me. So I need to give you a little bit of backstory for you to understand where it came from. my at the time two and a half year old nephew, our nephew, my husband is in mine, developed brain cancer and needed a very complicated emergency surgery, and he was not meant to live. And thankfully, he is still alive and he is eight years old. And so that is awesome. But that is the closest cancer story in my life. And I found myself needing an iron infusion. And you're thinking, what does this have to do with your two-year-old nephew with cancer? Here's the thing. They give iron infusions, it's, you need a specialized nurse. So they actually send you to the chemo ward to get an iron infusion. And so I remember being sent to the hospital and opening the doors, the double doors into the chemo area. And the first thing I saw was the wig shop. And then I saw a waiting room full of people that I'm sure were not all there for iron infusions. And beyond that, Patients littered around this huge room with half walls, and sometimes there would be a nurse sitting with, with one of them, but they were all you know, hooked up to, to something. And I sat in that chair, and I felt like an absolute fraud. I don't have cancer. Who am I to walk in here and literally get liquid energy while these people are being poisoned? And it flashed me back to my little nephew. But I had to work through the fact that I also have a loaded medical history. And cancer isn't a part of it. But it certainly hasn't been easy. And I don't find room for comparisons. Because I think what's hard for a person is hard for a person. And it doesn't matter what another person's heart is. There's no reason to compare. And I had to work through that. That, you know, I am I a fraud for sitting here getting an iron infusion when actually I am not a stranger to illness and I could empathize in a way that if it had only been about iron that I probably couldn't have been able to. And uh, wow, one of the most impactful moments in my medical history, as well as my life, I think, walking out of that hospital after witnessing and being surrounded by all these these people who were just trying to hang on to life. And I came home and a couple of days later, my piano called to me. And I know that sounds perhaps silly, but there is an unspoken beckoning that I sometimes feel. And I just know when I feel that beckoning, I had better sit myself down at that piano. And It's Lonely Here was born. That is where that song came from. I feel it on a personal level, because I too have felt very lonely in the illness at times even while supported surrounded by a support system uh, I have an incredible support system but the loneliness of being inside yourself and no one else there with you is can be immense and just empathizing with those folks sitting in that room you know receiving their hopefully life-giving poison I don't know how else to put that so that's how the song was born, and that's why it's so important to me. And I hope that I never forget that moment in time because, wow, yeah, I I think I've gained some empathy because of it.
0: If you are curious about Susie's music, head over to YouTube. After listening to this episode, of course, <laughs> Susie has two channels with her music. One of them is called Susie Bird. Two words: S U S I E, and B-I-R-D The other one is called Sushwa That is S-U-S-C-H-W-A Check them out and give Susie's music a listen And now, without further ado And with some pure Joni Mitchell vibes Here is It's Lonely Here by Susie Bird And all I can say is Wow Enjoy
2: No hair, no hair No one else comprehends but those who are there Here's my hand It's all I've got Cause now I understand Tomorrow's a new day What does that mean for me? It might be more news Who has the energy? I need your hand That's all you've got And I know you understand Surrounded by sickness, peace. for holding us here, desperate for breath, begging for one more year, hand in hand, we're all we've got, how could they understand? Slow
0: Thank you so, 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 so much, Susie. For anyone interested in learning more about you, your journey, your book, your music, the whole bundle of chronically ill but thriving, how can you be reached?
1: Well, there's a few places you can find me. As far as social media goes, I'm most active on Instagram, and I have two accounts One is my Medical Miss Stress account, and that's at Medical Miss, M-I-S-S underscore stress, because it's all about trying to ditch the stress and get rid of it. That's where you'll hear about my chronic life story, about, you know, the books that I'm putting out, and you'll find support there, the negative positivity. I also have an Instagram account, susie.sushwa, S-U-S-C-H-W-A, and that's where you'll hear more about my music. But if you go to either of my links at those places, you'll you'll be able to find the other account. I'm also on TikTok at Susie, S-U-S-I-E underscore Schwartz. You'll see it in the show notes. And my website is lesshealthstress.com. And if you are someone who struggles with chronic illness and you want to join a group of other like-minded people that are just trying to get through the day and support each other. I do have a Facebook group that's open to the public called No One Wants Illness. And also I put out a weekly, a short weekly support letter to your inbox if you'd like that called Combos with Carlos because he's my little chihuahua and he hears everything, but I saved the best for you. So it's called Convos with Carlos, One Care, One Quote one question. And you can find that at my website or on my link tree on my Instagram bios. And if I get bombarded with questions and request for you to come back,
0: would you come back to speak to me again?
1: It would be an absolute honor to come back and talk with you. I've quite enjoyed myself. Thank you for having me. Thought evolutionists.
0: I want to send an extra big hug to all of you out there who are not well today. I'm sorry you're going through something rough. And although I cannot change your circumstances, your health, your situation, I hope that this hour with me and Susie helped you feel a bit more seen, understood, and valued. I cannot predict the future, but I hope that tomorrow is a little better for you than today. And for all of you out there trying to truly be supportive of somebody living with chronic illness, experiencing grief, or facing something really difficult, please remember what Susie said about negative positivity. Our language matters, and it's something I am still trying to learn more about. As a rule of thumb though, speak from your heart. Let the person know you are there for them, and that even though you may not comprehend what they are going through, that there is somebody who will sit with them even in the most silent of times, who will carry them when they are unable to walk just like Susie's husband did, and who will listen to them when they are ready to talk. Friends, to learn more about Susie, her book, her music, and everything else she's sharing with the world, please go to LessHealthStress.com. That is LessHealthStress.com. And also check the episode guide for Susie's link tree with all the links. If you would like to continue the conversation, ask your own questions, or even become a guest yourself please go to thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, where you can find contact options, our intake form for all new guests, as well as, and I have to say it because people are missing out, our merch store. If you have not at least given it a look, please check it out. I'm not promising too much when I say that our merch is fire. It is vibrant, it's meaningful, stylish, and... It helps out your favorite podcast. So check it out. Again, ThoughtVolutionPodcast.com. Last but not least, make sure to subscribe to, then rate, review, and share this podcast on all the platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and of course on your favorite podcast app, whether that is Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, I would still love, love, love to receive your letters to yourselves. If you have not emailed me what is hopefully a love letter to whoever you are, please do so. The email address is info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. I cannot wait to hear from you. All right. The time has come to wish you a great rest of your day wherever you might be in the world, in your health journey, or in your life. I love you, Lotsies. And I hope we get to inspire each other again next week. Don't forget, Tuesday is Thought Thoughtvolution Day. So, set that reminder and as always, be kind to each other.